This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted, as always, to be here with you today. Later on in today's episode, we will be talking with radio personality, journalist, and cat rescue advocate extraordinaire, Steve Dale of Chicago. Um, one of the people who, and and this is a true story, was one of the first people, I would say, to really put Homer's Odyssey on the map. Steve has a very large national following among pet owners. And when the paperback for Homer's Odyssey came out, it was doing okay the first few weeks, but it hadn't really ignited yet. And then Steve wrote a big story about it, which was nationally syndicated. And the book ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm speaking of the paperback, the hardcover, and I've talked about the the whole process of publication with that, was a separate story and that had come out a year earlier. Um, but the paperback has has sold many more copies than the hardcover. And Steve is definitely one of those people who helped make that happen. So if you are somebody who read Homer's Odyssey in paperback, there's a reasonably good chance that either directly or indirectly you did so because of Steve Dale's advocacy of the book. And he's going to be here talking to us today, actually not at all about Homer's Odyssey, but about other vital information and issues to to cat owners and cat rescuers. And some of it is really exciting news and information that that I'm really looking forward to sharing with all of you, especially those of you who work in rescue, I think there's going to be some um, some things that come out of that interview that that are going to be incredibly meaningful for you. And I will leave it at that for now. And I apologize if I seem a little uh, <laughs> a little more what's the word fishimmeled is is the the word that my grandmother would have used. If I seem a little bit more fishimmeled than I usually am on a podcast, um, I'm kind of exhausted today. And today is Sunday that I'm recording this. And I will tell you why I am so exhausted. That is because I have been working a lot more at night. Usually I'm a morning person. I get up early. I start working early in the day. And so I get up at around five. I start working at around seven. I'm done for the day, maybe at around three or four. And then I have a relaxing or as relaxing as possible evening. But I've been doing a lot more of my work in the evenings, although I'm still getting up just as early. And, and the, re- the reason for that is because my life has been taken over by some animals that I am feeding. And I'm, I'm a little bit at the end of my tether here. I'm not really sure what to do. Uh, what, once again, I'm going to throw this out to the wisdom of the crowd and, and solicit some advice. So, so here's the situation that I'm in. So about a week ago, I was in my kitchen. There's a back door for my kitchen that leads down onto our back deck in our backyard. And the top half, it's a very old house. And the top half of that kitchen door 
is a window. It's a very thick glass, so it would be difficult for someone to shatter, but obviously you can see out of it into the backyard. And I was in the kitchen doing whatever I was doing in the kitchen, and a squirrel um, was in the lowest branch of an oak tree that is very close to our back deck and thus reasonably close to that door that leads out to it. And he was yelling at me. I don't know if you've ever seen squirrels when they get upset, when when they, they feel that something is threatening them and they start kind of stomping their tails and, and yelling. Um, there's really no other better way to, to put it. I'm sure there's got to be video of it on YouTube somewhere if you're not sure what I'm talking about. And it can be an irritating sound, although in this case, I just, this was clearly a young squirrel. You know, he's small, a, a teenage squirrel about to face his first winter and stocking up on things. And I felt bad for him that he was so scared of me. He obviously has not gotten the neighborhood memo that all the other animals have that I am harmless and also easily intimidated. <laughs> so, so to make him feel a little more comfortable and also to stop him from yelling, I got a piece of bread out of the pantry, ripped it up into little pieces, threw it out into the backyard. He, After he realized that it was not some horrible trick, it, it took him a minute or two to get down off of his safe perch on the tree and, and venture down into the grass to, to get it. But eventually he did. And he, he was very cute to watch him eating his, his little pieces of bread. And I figured that was that. Um, but then the next day I, I saw the same. I, I, it, I'm pretty sure it was the same squirrel. It was the same size. His tail looked exactly the same. And he saw me and, and he did not yell at me, which I thought was a, a good advancement in our relationship. And again, and this is something, look, I, I have been in this house for three years now. I have fed many squirrels from the back deck. And so I really did not think too much about it. But there were some peanuts in a bowl um, that my husband was going to be having for a snack. And I took a handful of them and threw them out into the backyard to the squirrel, who was very, very, very enthusiastic about the peanuts. And about 20 minutes later, um, this squirrel appeared on. The, so I should add, by the way, that that my the desk where I work is in the dining room of our house. It's in a corner and it's kind of all the way in the in the back corner, pushed right up against a pair of French doors that lead out onto the back deck. Um, and the French, I mean, you know what French doors are. They're basically windows from top to bottom. So I'm sitting at my desk next to what are basically two very large windows that go from floor to ceiling. And the squirrel comes right up onto the railing of the deck and and basically comes up to where he's as close to to me at the window as he can be without actually being in our house. And just sat there basically in a classic dog begging position, uh, by which I mean up on his hind legs with his little front paws kind of tucked up in front of his little chest, like a dog who's been trained to, you know, who, who understands the command beg um, in that posture and just kind of sat there looking at me for a long time. And I am so, I mean, intimidated is the wrong word. I obviously was not scared of the squirrel, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys know by now, like, I'm just not the kind of person who can resist an animal that's begging for food if I have food to offer. And especially when it's a little animal who's clearly still kind of a baby and and is cute and is sitting so close to me. Anyway, to make a long story short, I over the course of the day, um, my husband's bowl of peanuts got smaller and smaller and the, the squirrel got more and more enthusiastic. 
But he did leave eventually. And I suppose it was naive of me to think that this would be the end of our relationship, that he would go back to his squirrel life and pursue some sort of life of squirrel fulfillment, um, which I suppose in a manner speaking he did because now his his mode of life and his, his life of fulfillment is sitting on my deck um, begging for food. And he now returns with another squirrel who I think is probably his litter mate. Um, I think the two of them are siblings. They they are both very young. Although maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe there is some sort of a mating relationship. I'm not really sure if one or both of them is male or female. I'm not sure how one sexes squirrels. But these two squirrels, and, and whatever their relationship is, they, they are, they've clearly decided that there is some sort of relationship between the two of them and me. And they come back every day. They start early in the day and they, they either stay continuously or come back and forth until late at night. And yes, I, I have continued to, to give them some food. I mean, winter's coming. They are two little squirrels. I'm not a monster. I obviously want to, to provide them with whatever food and, and shelter and safety I can. And it, but it's, it's that last one that has become something of a sticking point. See, we still haven't gotten to why this is interfering with my work. Although the, the combined force of two begging squirrels sitting right outside my window begging would be a distraction regardless. Uh, but a, a complicating factor in all of this is that there is a neighborhood cat, uh, who some of you may have heard me speak about before, a beautiful, long haired, black and white, green eyed cat. Um, who is a neighborhood cat. She is owned by a family on my block. She is an indoor-outdoor cat. The subject of this cat and my feelings about her owners and and how they treat her is a subject perhaps best left for another podcast. It is its own upsetting thing. Although I will say the cat does appear to be happy and healthy. I just very strongly disapprove of the way her owners let her out in our not-at-all-quiet neighborhood with lots and lots of high-speed automobile traffic, um, where there are many other feral cats and raccoons and skunks, and have taken a very lackadaisical attitude toward feeding her insofar as, although she is pretty slim, she is continuously asking me and several of my neighbors for food. And we all take turns feeding her. When I say take turns, I don't mean that we have an official schedule drawn up or anything, um, but there are at least two other families on the block who, who also feed this cat. I uh, probably goes without saying it, additionally feed this cat when she shows up on my back deck, which she does not every day, but I would say several days a week. And so the additional complicating factor in all of this is when the cat who is used to being fed on my deck shows up and then sees two little squirrels just sitting there making rather easy targets and so, of course, she chases them and, and they run up their oak tree and she climbs it about halfway before realizing that she doesn't actually really care about the squirrels. She came here to get a bowl of uh, of a fussy cat, the Australian um, kind of very fishy cat food that my cats are really into these days. And so she comes and, assume, you know, eventually finishes chasing the squirrels and comes and assumes her position outside, the, you know, takes over their spot begging for food right outside the French door next to my window. While the squirrels, now two of them, 
get onto the lowest hanging branch of the oak tree and both of them together yell very loudly at the cat um, until she's finished eating and has left, uh, which is a, a distracting sound. The whole thing is distracting in and of itself. I mean, just the cat coming and chasing the squirrels. But the thing that now gnaws at my guts and that actually sort of keeps me up at night and distracts me from my work until after sunset when these squirrels are safely asleep and hidden away wherever it is they hole up for the night is the possibility that one day this cat is actually going to get one of the squirrels who are not very well protected and they are sitting in a fairly vulnerable place. And moreover, they are not as attentive as they should be because they are watching me so fixedly. And I have tried feeding them farther and farther away from the deck. Um, I, I, I realize at some point that the solution to all of this is not to feed them at all or not to feed anyone at all, or although that that is also a sad and upsetting thought for me. Um, so I'm not really sure what to do. I've actually chosen today. I'm just keeping the, the, the curtains down over those French doors that lead out to the backyard, and I am just not going to feed anybody. And again, there are other people on the block who, who feed the cat. There are other, other houses that I know she can go to to be fed, um, including hypothetically her own, where I would like to think they occasionally feed her something instead of simply relying on their neighbors to do it for them. And the squirrels can go and forage and do whatever it is that squirrels typically do when they are not being hand fed by a soft, a foolishly soft hearted neighbor. Um, the real kicker to this whole thing, though, is, is that all of this, this whole backyard drama that has been unfolding over the course of the past week is from Clayton's perspective is like this reality show that he is obsessed with and cannot tear himself away from. He now, as soon as the sun comes up and I raise the shades in the morning, he stations himself right in front of the French door and his eyes are huge and, and his ears are perked and he does not take his eyes off of that back deck until maybe three or so in the afternoon when the sun starts to get low. I mean, the cat is not daytime napping, which is, I, I think, for a cat pretty extreme. Like, if you knew a person who didn't nap during the day, you wouldn't even think twice about it. Most people, most adults do not take naps during the day, although I do at least two or three days a week. I'm, I, what, you know, I'm a full time writer. That's just how I roll. But, Anyway, you wouldn't think too much of it, but in the context of a cat not sleeping during the day, I, I really, all kidding aside, I'm wondering if that qualifies as some sort of feline insomnia. Um, he, he doesn't sleep. I can even barely tear him away for, for lunch. I mean, he's eating his breakfast and his dinner very enthusiastically. And once I get his attention with the, with the food, he does, he does eat his lunch with enthusiasm as well. But he is sort of not caring about his scheduled mealtime and he's not sleeping during the day. He is completely obsessed with watching what is going on in our backyard. So I guess both Clayton and I will, will see how events unfold from here. I mean, obviously what I'd love in a perfect world would be to keep feeding everybody and, and to get into some sort of a schedule where the squirrels come at a certain time and the cat comes at a certain time when the squirrels know not to be here or know that no food will be forthcoming. Um, 
or for the cat to just be fed exclusively at our neighbors' homes. Uh, although I'm I'm happy to feed the cat, but this is of course part of the problem in developing. You know, cats are actually pretty easy to to get on a schedule, except that this cat, when her people even let her in and out, is never at any specific set times, and then whoever is going to feed her on any particular day depends to some extent upon whether they, these people even notice that the cat is hanging around waiting to be fed. So it's very hard to to create a schedule unless I, I mean, even if I really wanted to take on the responsibility of being the sole person who feeds this cat. Um, although I really do not want to take on that sole responsibility for various reasons which I'm not even going to explain more in depth because I'm sure everyone listening uh, understands that. So I, in the absence of any ability to create a schedule, a a set feeding schedule that everybody would observe, I'm honestly not sure what to do here except to get everyone used to my not feeding them at all. That that might be the only solution. Um, I wish I were traveling for the holidays because that would sort of create a natural opportunity to wean everybody, you know, to just be gone for a few days would create a natural opportunity to wean everybody off of being so dependent on me or at least spending so much time outside my window bullying me into feeding them. Oh, bullying is the wrong word, but they they know what they're doing. You know, obviously, they've everyone has figured out that I'm a sucker. The only thing that's really surprising to me at this point is that there is not an entire neighborhood full of animals like there was when I was a kid walking to school and distributing my lunch to to all takers who 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 came and asked for it between my house and and the schoolhouse um so but but perhaps it is a you know I haven't been here long enough and eventually all the the neighborhood animals will figure out um the the general policy that we have here and I do explain this to my husband when when he wonders why I get so invested in the backyard critters. And I always say, look, anything with four legs and fur that comes into this backyard and asks for food is going to receive food. That is just our policy. And and if you don't like it, you can speak to the manager. And that would be me, um, even though I, <laughs> I am the manager, although somewhat ironically, I am completely out of control in this situation. I've, or rather, it, I guess a better way to say this is that I, I have no control over anything that is happening. The animals are totally managing me and not vice versa. Um, I guess we'll see how it all plays out. But in the meantime, we are going to take a very short break of about 30 seconds or so. And when we come back, we will be speaking with radio personality, journalist, cat advocate, Steve Dale. So sit back, relax, get comfortable and stick around for more Thanks so much for sticking around. I am truly delighted to welcome today's guest, who I think it is probably fair to say is one of the two or three people responsible for putting Homer's Odyssey on the map. He is the host of two nationally syndicated radio shows, Steve Dale's Pet World and The Pet Minute, 
which are together heard on more than 100 radio stations. He's also a special contributor at WGN Radio Chicago, program host of Steve Dale's Pet World, and host of Steve Dale's Other World, a general interest talk show. Additionally, he's a writer and contributing editor for Catster, columnist for DVM 360, and also a columnist for the Journal of the National Association of Veterinary Technicians in America. Last but certainly not least, he's the chief correspondent at Fear Free Happy Homes, and I am so thrilled that he is here on our pad- podcast today. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Mr. Steve Dale. Hello. Wow, what an introduction. You know, I'm uh, in about an hour and a half, I'm going to jump on a uh, public transportation bus here in Chicago. When I get on the bus, would you introduce me the same way? <laughs> You know, I, I always say when my husband at, at cocktail parties, when people ask what I do and I say I'm a writer and Lawrence, you know, my, likes to say that I'm a famous writer. And I always say, and yet when I go to stop and shop, they treat me just like I was a regular person. <laughs> <laughs> what is stop and shop? Well, it's, you can tell me. You it's a, it's a grocery that. store chain, like A&P yeah. or, or Publix down in South Florida or whatever you have in Chicago. Um, but it must be, it's it's an interesting change, actually, in, in all of these years. And you and I have done many, many interviews together. But this is the first time that I am interviewing you. Does it, does it feel odd to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak? <laughs> well, I'm interviewed a lot, so. Right, um, but not by me. You know, you usually by interview you. Me. This is, right. this is my, uh. My virgin experience with you. Exactly. This is our first time switching roles, um, and and it is a lot of fun for me. But it's always so great to talk to you because you are such an, an incredible advocate for cats, and you you always, always have been. Um, it's something that has always impressed me about you, that you really, you have this very large platform, and you've used it to be an advocate for cats. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your work for the Win Feline Foundation, which now is the Every Cat Health Foundation. And so talk to us a little bit about that and also about this rebranding. Was was the what was the reason behind the switch of the name? Well, it's just because of uh, you know, we're we're in the year 2022 or 23, right? And now people go to Google and they type in cats or cat health or I care about cats or whatever they type in. And the word cat isn't in our name. So Google says, it doesn't matter what you've done historically as a nonprofit organization. They don't know about any of that. Ah, Very interesting. Yeah. So this is just a way in which people who care about cats can find us easier. Now, anyone listening to you, I am absolutely certain cares about cats. So if you've ever had a cat, if you've ever known a cat, if you've ever seen a cat, pretty much everything, I'll say that again, everything we know about that cat, that cat's health, and greatly that cat's behavior was once funded by this nonprofit, as you mentioned, once called the Win Feline Foundation for 53 years, I think it is now, now called the Every Cat Health Foundation. It also describes more of what we do. Uh, the Wind Feline Foundation, here's the truth. A dude way back when, 50-something years ago, stood up at a meeting, a Cat Fanciers Association meeting, that's uh, a registry of pedigree cats, and said, we need to study cats because nobody was really doing that. And we need to fund studies. Robert W-I-N-N 
that was his name. Well, he's been, sadly, he passed away 35 years ago or some such thing. And no one really knows how to spell win or where that comes from. So you just heard the story about where that comes from. But again, uh, in today's era, and we're not forgetting Robert Wynn's legacy by any means, but in today's era, having a name that describes what you do seems to make sense. Look, it happens all the time at Lincoln Center. You know, these billionaires pay however much money to have a building named for themselves in Lincoln Center. Then 50, you know, and, and it's supposed to be into perpetuity, but time rolls on, they die, some new billionaire comes along and wants the building to be named for him. And so the name changes and that's how it well, works. Yeah, I was once at an animal shelter and I was commenting to the director. I mean, everything has a name on it. I mean, really everything, the drinking fountain, you know, I mean, everything. Hey, it's a so great way to fundraise. Said, yeah. And she said, well, there aren't many name value opportunities left. We've been so successful. I said, yes, there's one left. You can rename that room down the hall. She said, which room? And I was pointing to the room that said men on the door. And I said, <laughs> you could just call it the Steve Dale room. It would be appropriate. People might not understand what it was to be used for, though, based on the name. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they would, knowing me. But that's altogether another A topic story. for a different podcast. Yes. Um, yes. But- so, so here's the thing. Uh, this organization, a nonprofit, I said has done everything we know. So I want to give you just a few examples. Diabetes in cats, which is now pretty much an epidemic due to all the overweight and obese cats. I I had a diabetic cat, actually. We we changed her diet and were able eventually to reverse the diabetes. But you're right. it, It is a problem. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that diabetes is as much a risk, diet-related diabetes is as much a risk for cats as it is for humans. And you really have to be careful about what you're feeding your cats. I, in my naive, younger naive days, did not realize that this was a concern that I should that I should have. Well, in fact, uh, we didn't know that diabetes could be reversed. We didn't know, uh, first off, which kind of diabetes it was, how it was caused. Now we know all that. Uh, but that's all funding from this organization or the fact that if you can get the weight down, change the metabolism by just a little bit of exercise, as well as uh, the, the, treat the diabetes that is there properly with insulin, uh, it may it may be reversed. And there, uh, I mean, but nobody knew that. So that was this organization. Feline leukemia way back in the day, way back in the day was called the feline lymph node disease, I am told. No one understood the mechanism. No one understood that is what we call a retrovirus. And without that understanding, the vaccine couldn't have been created. And now we understand even more about feline leukemia that a shelter cat, for example, that has uh, feline leukemia can be adopted out. These cats do not and should not need to be euthanized. Uh, Another example is Something I'd like to talk to you about separately is arthritis in cats, how often that really does occur. Kidney disease in cats. We've not solved that issue by any means, but we know more about it because this of this organization's funding. Well, I'd like to I'd actually like to come back to sorry, the, the feline leukemia, because I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about one thing that I know is of concern to a lot of the rescuers who listen to the show and and many of our listeners 
are very involved with, with animal rescue and with cat rescue. Um, but there, there are some new treatments for FIP that the Every Cat Health Foundation is, is bringing forward, is responsible for the discovery of. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that a little bit. Oh, gosh, I would love to. So FIP, not feline leukemia, FIP or feline infectious peritonitis. Well, I bring it up because these are, you know, in, in the world of rescue, there are certain oh, conditions yeah. that, that deem a cat unadoptable. And much like feline leukemia, FIP is certainly one of them. And oh, so the idea yes. that there's treatment for it, I, I think, is is a really heartening kind of revolutionary turn of events in, in, animal, it's, in, it's in cat what, rescue. Yeah, it's one of the most noteworthy things that has happened in my lifetime, uh, without question. You know, when we announced this uh, at an event, veterinarians were literally in tears because FIP had always been considered fatal. First off, no one understood how feline infectious peritonitis worked. It's very complex. And we, uh, the organization, which I'm on the board, incidentally, uh, for 15 years, perhaps, the Every Cat Health Foundation, going way back, well over 15 years, more like 40 years, has been funding Dr. Niels Peterson in particular, uh, and other veterinarians all over the world, uh, researchers, to figure out first off how this, what what's the mechanism here of, of FIP? How does it work? We did not understand that for years and years, because there's nothing else like it on the human side, on the dog side, or on the cat side. Uh, we really didn't understand what we were dealing with. And it's caused by a coronavirus, incidentally, a feline coronavirus that mutates into an immune-mediated disease called feline infectious peritonitis. Coronavirus, the feline coronavirus in cats, is pretty benign. Some kitties get an upset tummy, and by the time you call the veterinarian, usually the kitty is better. So it's it's and and usually they don't get an upset tummy; they get the virus, but they they don't get sick. So uh, that's the good news. So how does this? What which cats are susceptible to have this happen? And it's mostly kittens, sometimes geriatric cats, but by far mostly kittens, and on and on and on. I mean, we just didn't know any of this stuff. It took years to understand. And many, many potential treatments had been tried. I believe everything but chicken soup. Well, I think uh, the, the last couple of years have, have uh, represented several strides forward in the treatment of coronaviruses in general, obviously. Well, this was all before the pandemic, you know, right. which has... And there are... Very, very briefly, there are many human coronaviruses. We right. dealt with coronaviruses that we call the common cold for a very long time. Right. So in 2009, 2017, Dr. Niels Peterson came to our board of directors and our scientific advisory group and said, I've got a drug, an antiviral drug that was actually used to treat Ebola somewhat ineffectively in people. The drug's available. Here is scientifically why I think this drug is going to work for kittens with FIP. Can I try it? Well, we said yes, because when he described why it might work at a uh, chemical level and a clinical level, it made some sense. But we also said yes, because 
Nothing else has worked or even come close to working sure. at that point in time. I mean, what is there to lose? These kittens weren't given, incidentally, so people know. These kittens were not given FIP. They had it anyway. It's considered fatal. So why not, if the pet parent is willing, why not try something, you know? So we we he did a clinical trial and another clinical trial, and the kittens lived. And it's like, we could not believe it. That's why he did a second one. So, you know, one one thing that we are very fond of saying in, in Homer's community is that when you help animals, you help people too. And this is a, a kind of, um, what's the word, like a motto that I have developed as a way of responding to people who wonder why so much time, energy, resources, research, et cetera, is quote unquote wasted on animals when there are so many human problems. And I find this to be a ridiculous argument for a number of reasons, uh, but one of them certainly is that I do not view this as being a binary kind of thing where you help animals or you help people. And I feel like this, because we were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, and you were telling me how this has actually led, this research has led to some treatments for uh, for COVID in humans, that this work on treating that the Every Cat Foundation was doing to treat FIP. And cats. Yeah, it's quite incredible, really. So hold on to your seats. And I'm holding on. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. Because you probably haven't heard this story before. No, I have not. In 2019, uh, the Winfieland Foundation or Every Cat Health Foundation uh, hosted a symposium at University of California Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. And we officially changed the terminology of... Uh, I'm sorry. And I also want to, this is also a wonderful organization, by the way, the the UC Davis School of Veterinary um, Medicine. Oh, sure. A wonderful organization. Yes. And and we uh, changed and textbooks are in the process of reprinting now uh, the definition of feline infectious peritonitis or FIP from uh, fatal to treatable. And that's where we saw those tears, incidentally. And we brought in researchers from all over the world. Dr. Peterson, uh, then retiring at uh, UC Davis, was there to host and kick to kick it off. Uh, but we had speakers from all over the world, pretty much anyone who had done research on FIP uh, came in for this from place, far-flung places, uh, from Kansas to uh, England to other places around the world. So. It was a wonderful symposium, but what was important is what we learned and what we put together based on the knowledge we have and the studies that demonstrated that a drug can work. Now, what drug worked? So when Dr. Peterson first came to us, he said, I've got this drug called remdesivir. And then he came to us again and said, well, the company, the pharma company is not letting us have remdesivir. They've got a slightly less expensive drug, but it's the same pro drug. It's it's pretty much the same. And I'll use that drug. And we did. And uh, as I said, FIP is caused ultimately by the coronavirus. When the pandemic hit, the government didn't know what to do. Now, vaccines were already for years, incidentally, in the works. Right. Uh, but there was no antiviral that was suitable to really treat it. They tried Tamiflu. They looked at that, actually. I mean, they didn't know what the, 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 the opportunities for drugs were very limited. So they were aware because it had been published in various scientific journals about remdesivir. 
or this drug just like remdesivir? And they went to the company that makes remdesivir and they said, let's do a clinical trial with COVID-19 because at that point, the pandemic hit. And guess what? It helped people. And it has helped people all over the world. Now, it's not the perfect drug for COVID-19, but it's certainly a great supportive drug. It has saved lives. I well, mean, it's, it's one probably... more tool in the toolkit and an important oh, uh, tool to this, have in the toolkit. This, yeah, absolutely. And this drug has probably participated in saving millions of lives around the world. That would not have happened. People would not have been, the government researchers would not have been aware of the potential of that drug if it were not for Dr. Peterson's research, us approving that research at the nonprofit called Every Cat Health Foundation, but mostly for cats getting FIP. So because cats get FIP, we've helped millions of people who have COVID-19. And to me, that's quite an incredible story on many levels. Um, I agree. Although I do also think it's worth pointing out excuse me, Um, I I get emotional at stories like this myself, but I do think it is worth pointing out that um, one of the oldest stories in science is finding an application for a treatment, for a process, for a a product, for a result, whatever the case may be, that is different from what the original intention of the research was. Um, And the the point being that I, I think a lot of times people tend to it's something people tend to complain about scientific research in fields that they don't think are important or that they don't think are valuable, not realizing that the applications very often stretch far beyond the original scope of the project. That's it's why we have everything from microwave ovens to remdesivir to Viagra. Yeah, and so again, I I, I just find it I, I think it's important for people who do support animal welfare to understand these things so that when they are engaging with people who don't think it's important that there is something to counter with aside from, well, I love animals and you're a jerk if you don't, which is completely also valid, by the way. (laughs) Anybody who doesn't like animals, as far as I'm concerned, um, is possibly not worth having the conversation with in the first place. But it is something that we so frequently have to defend, those of us who work in animal rescue. And it's, it's wonderful to have somebody like you um, who, with his fingers in so many different aspects of both the veterinary and the rescue world, to speak to the ways in which human welfare and animal welfare so frequently intersect. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I'd love to talk to you about the human-animal bond that we have with cats and how that's changing at some point in time. But the good news is that uh, a drug is now available. Now, the bad news is the Food and Drug Administration Center for Veterinary Medicine has not yet approved the drug. So we're waiting for that. So in the meantime, countries like China, mostly China, uh, I think only China, have come in and said, here's some knockoff drugs. And we didn't know if those drugs were working or not. So now there's a study that demonstrates greatly those drugs actually do work. We don't know what's in them. I'm not supporting the notion of it, but I'm telling you if it's my cat that has FIP, I'm going to go to FIP Warriors on Facebook, that's, by the way, the page, and get more information about these drugs, get support. There are dozens of veterinarians now on this page as well. You know, So technically, it's something veterinarians shouldn't be doing. This is not an approved drug, but veterinarians care about animals first and foremost. We know through scientific studies that greatly, anyway, these drugs work. 
Uh, they're not inexpensive. They don't always, always get to you on time because they're from China. But again, if it's my kitten, I'm going to do what I can to save my kitten's life. And, you know, frankly, I'm just angry that the Food and Drug Administration Center for Veterinary Medicine has not moved faster. There is some uh, hint that they're going to perhaps approve it next year, 2020, whatever it is, uh, coming up anyway. 2023. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> They're good with numbers. So, so well, the time, the time she does fly, but uh, yes, it's yeah. going to be 2023. <laughs> yeah, that's the hope. Uh, but the the good news is the, these drugs work. And remdesivir itself, by the way, in countries like Australia, the UK and others uh, is directly, that is the drug, interestingly enough, uh, that is used for FIP in those countries. And ultimately could be used in the United States off-label as well. Uh, Many drugs are used, quote-unquote, off-label for dogs and cats, and they have been for decades and decades. One more thing about the, if I can get it in before, because I know we're getting short on time here, uh, for the Every Cat Health Foundation, my involvement began uh, when I had a piano playing cat named Ricky. I said that, (laughs) piano playing cat. This cat could do all these things back at a time when no one thought about cats. Recording this and putting it on YouTube or (laughs) anything like that. I'm going back about 15. No, I'm going back closer to 20 years. And YouTube wasn't even thought about, you know, I mean, no one knew. So did Ricky play actual songs or did he just kind of bang his paws around on the piano? It was a little kid's piano. And uh, we wanted to teach our dog who was doing animal assisted therapy at a local children's hospital uh, to do a new trick. My wife said she came home one day, teach Lucy, the dog, something new. So I thought, I don't know how I thought of this, but or why, but I went to Kids R Us and bought a little kid's piano and began the process of clicker training uh, the dog to do this. And things were going okay. I thought I closed the door to the room we were in, but I didn't all the way. In walks Ricky the cat, who is not even a year old at the time, looks at me, looks at the piano, looks at the dog, and goes ping, 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 ping on the (laughs) piano. So I thought, oh my gosh, I've got a prodigy here. So I uh, then began, Ricky loved to go out with us. Again, something no one did at that point in time with a cat. Uh, and I taught Ricky how to jump through a hoop. If you had a couple dogs, he'd jump over one and another and another. If you had a couple kids, he'd jump over one and another and another. And he knew all these things. He was and ahead so of his he, time. Hmm? He was ahead of his time. He was. And uh, <laughs> unfortunately, he died of what's called feline hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It's by far uh, the most common heart disease in cats. And it may be the number one cause of cats that death, number one cause of death in cats uh, between the age of about three and 10. Uh, and of course, I was devastated. Um, you know, sudden death is typically what might happen with these cats. Uh, they can go into heart failure and that's more prolonged. But Ricky just suddenly healed over like the some players do on the basketball court or football field. Sure. And um, I began a fund called the Ricky Fund. We've raised, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. We do know more about the disease. We don't have a treatment. We've, to your point earlier, science is kind of tricky sometimes. So we know 
what treatments might not work, uh, but we've not found one yet for sure that does. But this is how I got involved in the organization. And that fund, the Ricky Fund, I believe celebrating 20 years this year, actually. Uh, what a what a wonderful legacy for Ricky. And um, yeah, and actually, yeah. I, you know, I do because it is very tricky. It can be very tricky to diagnose any number of conditions in cats. And, and one reason for that is because it can be very difficult to tell when a cat is in pain. And so that's yes. something I want to talk to you about. Before we move on to that, though, I do want to let people know um, the Every Cat Health Foundation is, is definitely something that is worthy of your end of year getting in those last tax deductible donations support. And if people want to learn more or, or possibly donate money, what can they do? Where can they go? How can they how can they learn? Well, thank you. Uh, it's every cat, just one word, E-V-E-R-Y-C-A-T, everycat.org. And you can learn more about the organization. And if you are so inclined, make a donation to the Ricky Fund or make a general donation or to study FIP because we're not completely there yet with FIP. There's more to go. Um, and what what that more to go, by the way, at this point may help people as well. Uh, so uh, National Institutes of Health, the NIH, is looking very carefully at what we're doing, but they're not supporting us. So you can support us, perhaps, and that is everycat.org. All right. And and again, this is absolutely an organization. I, I would encourage those listening to check it out to learn more. It is definitely an organization that is that is worthy of your support, moral, financial, and otherwise. And we'll be back next week with the second part of our conversation with Steve Dale. So don't forget to join us. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today. <laughs>